Welcome to episode 267 of Texting, hosted by myself, Justin Vincent, and Jason Roberts. On today's show, we're talking to Gabriel Weinberg, founder of DuckDuckGo and co-author of Traction, a startup guide to getting customers. Hey, Gabe, welcome to the show. Nice to be back. I, I don't remember how long it's been, honestly. <laughs> it has been a while. Yes, and you have a number on that? You Have you looked and see? That's a good idea. I'll tell you what, I'll, um, I'll just search that while you do the intro. All right. While you, while you say hi. <laughs> All right, right. Well, Gabe, it's, it's great to have you back, man. It's been, uh, been too long. Indeed. Indeed. So, so you know, we're, we're, I guess the, the, the primary thing we're going to talk about today is, uh, is your new book, Traction, A Startup Guide to Getting Customers, with uh, co-author Justin Mares. And But um, I, I, th- I think what might be good to do first is to get a, a little update on DuckDuckGo. I mean, uh, every time we talk to you, we, your company is like five times as big as it was before or something <laughs> like that. So what, what's, what's been the – where are you now? What's, this, what's the state of DuckDuckGo? I like if that's the impression. That's a good impression. <laughs> no, it's true well, or not. You, you got so much bigger from the first to the second time we thought, talked to you we, that Justin and I didn't even think you would talk to us again. You're like, ah, he's too big, <laughs> he's famous. He's not even going to want to waste. So we are, we are at about 150 million searches a month um, and our kind of big news because the day we're recording this, I don't know what's coming out, we're recording this on the day the um, – iPhone, iOS 8 is coming out on uh, on the new and old iPhones. And so where DuckDuckGo is a search option in the new iOS 8 OS. Oh, wow. Um, wow. And so that, that's a that's my biggest accomplishment so far <laughs> with regards to DuckDuckGo and kind of business development. Yeah. So that that is kind of a big deal. I mean, so is it what? Bing, Yahoo, Google, DuckDuckGo? That is right. Wow, that's pretty impressive. So, what what has been your growth rate over the past? Uh, you know, I guess searches would be probably the primary metric over the past you know couple of years. Do you have that? Yeah, our there? traffic is actually public. So, DuckDuckGo.com slash traffic, and you know, if you if you look historically, starting two thousand eight, we've grown like you said, you know, three to five hundred percent a year, which meant every time we talked to me, we were probably five times bigger or something, right? Um, but it's not like it's been continuous growth. We've, um, you know, it's been more like a step function type of thing, or it's not totally a step function, but more like we would, we always had a background rate of organic growth, but then we would essentially unlock a new uh, marketing channel or traction channel, if you will, from the book. And you have an explosive period of growth um, and then kind of, kind of level up. And then we would figure out a next kind of way to do that. Um, and so that's happened and every, you know, like we don't know what that next bump is going to be exactly, but every, you know, 18 months or so we found one. Right. Right. And where you're at now currently, and just in terms of people, I mean, cause for a long time it was just really you sitting in your bedroom or home office for, I don't know what, like first two years or something like that. Three and a half years. Yeah. This has been going on for a while. I am not doing this from my basement this time. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> Uh, we actually do have an office, although we're mostly virtual. So we've hired everyone from our community, mainly open source community. And so that, that can be anyone from anywhere. Um, and so most people are actually remote all around the world. But we do have an office headquarters in Harold, Pennsylvania, near where I live. And um, I'm in that office right now. <laughs> <laughs> we do actually have office space. Um, so, yeah. So you have... 
I mean, and so how, how many employees do you have at your on your office? How many do you have globally? It's a bit fluid because of the way we hire and we're, we're kind of ambivalent to part-time, full-time. So, um, you know, there, there's a bit of that. But we have about 20 full-time equivalent people. Um, five are in the office here and the rest are remote. So, yeah, so that, I mean, that's, that's a substantially bigger company than you sitting in your basement. That's pretty cool. I was going to say, if anything's a testament to traction, it's what Gabriel's done with his company. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, so I, that's that's one of the reasons I want to ask you about this to really give, you know, I, I think people need to understand who's writing this book or, you know, or who's behind it because, you know, you have a lot of people writing books on business and marketing and startups and they may not always have a lot of real personal firsthand experience doing that, but obviously you do. And I mean, we, we may have talked about this five years ago whenever we first talked because I've been working on this book for five years. <laughs> yeah, well, that was what I was going to ask you. I remember, I think, before we even interviewed you the first time, whenever that was, 2010 or something, or maybe before that. And you, at the time, started a video series. You would interview entrepreneurs by video with some idea of creating a book or something and and at some point you stopped, like you just got too busy or distracted by building your own company that you didn't continue with it. What, what, what sort of story story on that? So yeah, so I started at the end of 2009, and the peak of doing that was kind of like the 2010 period. Mm-hmm. And you know, the story was I was trying to get traction for DuckDuckGo. I had also started angel investing and saw all my investments struggling to get traction as well as companies I would advise and realize, you know, there, all the lean startup stuff was taken off and there was a structure, there was some good structured ways to do product development, right? We've talked a lot about it on the show, um, right. but there didn't seem to be equivalent structured frameworks for getting traction. In fact, more than that, in it, I, I've been saying this because it comes directly from, from something you said, actually, you know, there was that, miracle function thing which i always right. refer to you know <laughs> right right um you know i i don't know if you've been talking about that recently but like you know the server person the successful company says we started it the miracle happened we got traction right um yeah and so my my interview series was was really about trying to unpack that miracle function same way that that, that you both were doing and seeing if i could see any patterns really you know um it, it was there a structured approach these people were taking? Was it random? Uh, was it luck? Um, you know, so and so that's what I set out to do. And I did a bunch of them, maybe like 25 of those interviews, and, and did come up with some patterns that I blogged about that kind of underpinned the thesis for the book, namely that, you know, in any given growth stage, there's usually one channel that was dominating. Um, that's been validated recently, seemingly by Peter Thiel's <laughs> stuff as well. Um, at least someone else believes that. Um, and two, that there were a lot of different ways people were getting traction. And it was kind of hard to predict, um, even for the people who were successful, which one was going to work. Um, and so from that point, I was like, okay, this is interesting. I could transcribe all these interviews and do an interview book, <laughs> but I don't particularly find that that would be very actionable and it wouldn't give people the structured framework. Like they wouldn't necessarily take away the right things from that. Um, and then, like you said, I got busy and then I realized how much work it would be to actually construct this into a real narrative and a useful book. 
and I kind of gave up. I was holding hope. I, I really think it was a useful thing. And I started to use the framework myself and let it go, but I needed a co-author for it to really work. And then, yeah. So finally I, I met up with just another Justin, right? And, right. And, and everybody, um, everybody needs a Justin. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then it, then it re it kind of reinvigorated life. And then I severe, both of us after recommitting and severely underestimated again, how much work it would be to really get something useful across the finish line. Um, that's why it took another kind of two years to get out when we really started in earnest, but then we did a whole nother series of interviews, um, and, and lots and lots of editing. So, so the, the truth about software being impossible to, uh, uh, to sort of overestimate, it's pretty much the same thing with books. So you found the same truth just carries over. Any I mean, ever? I, I think we feel, uh, even though we're, you and I are still probably bad at estimating our own software, at least I am. <laughs> right. <laughs> at least after, you know, 20 years, I think I'm, you know, have some experience at it. <laughs> right, right. I had zero on the book side and I was so, so, so wrong. Yeah, yeah, that's, um, you know, I was thinking, you know, it's interesting, about the book concept, if you kind of compare that to software, like, you know, I mean, I know this is sort of, you know, what they call Monday, my Monday morning quarterbacking, but in retrospect, you almost could have like had an initial book which just was a series of interviews so like 20 interviews. And then you wrote this follow up book as like the distillation of the information with a lot more information in, 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 and we'll get more into the structure of your book, which just seems like what you kind of iterated towards. It's almost like, you know, Hey, we could, you had in your mind, like, I want this book to really give people the information they need, how to build a company the right way or build their growth or their traction. But you know, okay, this is what I got 2011 or whatever. Yeah. I mean, I felt like I was giving that away already on my blog and then the interviews were public. So like, you know, you could, you could do that if you wanted to. Granted, packages in the book might be more useful. And, and we actually, I could have done that. We had a bunch transcribed. I just, I don't know. I just didn't want my name attached to an interview book that I didn't feel was that useful. Yeah, well, you know, it's, it's funny because my background, uh, you know, we've I don't know if we've talked about this, but I've talked about a lot on the show is in sort of the trading world. And there's all these books that interview all these, like, super traders, right? These, these guys, mostly guys, some women who, you know, made millions or hundreds of millions of dollars trading and, you know, how they trade and how they made money and what they tried and all that kind of stuff. And those books usually did really well because it's usually kind of fun to read their individual stories. Um, but then the, the next book would come out would be like the book that you came out with would follow up like three or four years later, kind of saying, okay, so the, here's the framework. But yes, um, you were right. We could have pursued that strategy. <laughs> <laughs> the MVP. So, um, uh, one other question I want to ask you, I mean, I, I want to get into the book more, but I, I, I kind of, I want to, um, I'm trying to build a little bit of a foundation here because I think people will really understand. So, you know, DuckDuckGo was not your first company. Your first company, I, what was the name of it again? It was like Classmates or something? Yeah, it was, it was kind of a bunch of names. That's why I see if I remember. It was, the name of the company was actually Opal Box, but it was doing business as the names database and then it sold to classmates.com. <laughs> okay, right, right, right. A lot of names in there. So you learned a lot of lessons from that, which allowed, which really helped you when you started DuckDuckGo. And I, we've talked about in the previous interviews. And I and I recommend anybody who's hasn't who's just, who's more recent to the show go back and and listen to some of these earlier interviews with Gabe because they're all really uh, I, I think some of our best interviews and, and great stories. But the other thing that you um, that I think is worth getting into a little bit is you 
invested in a lot of startups or, and, and or advise a bunch of different startups. And that seems to, you know, would obviously inform your, your expertise or insight on traction, right? Because you're not just, it's not like a sample space of one or two. It's like, well, I tried this in this company and I tried these three things in this company and whatever. It's like, I've had numerous conversations with all these kind of startups and watched them try things and fail and try other things and see things work. So could you maybe talk to us a little bit about, you know, first give us an idea, like how many startups have you advised, invested in, and what has been sort of your um, experience helping them uh, find traction on their own? Yeah, so to the latter point, I mean, the reason why I wrote this book is essentially this is the common story that happens is, you know, people have a good product idea. They're following lean startup stuff nowadays. You know, people launch. Traction is an afterthought. They try a few things, pretty much a random walk of things, you know, and then don't get enough traction. They run out of money and the product dies. And this is what I saw over and over again personally. And the sad part about it is, you know, the product it often is actually good. Like it, it probably could have succeeded if they had started traction earlier or, 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 or at least applied a structured framework to it. So that's kind of the common story. And you're kind of asking the second question was the methodology here. So yeah, I um, invested about 12 startups. I probably advised, um, oh, I don't know, maybe 35 or something like that. Seriously. Wow. Um, more than so 30, that. 35 serious advising. So it wasn't like just one phone call or a couple. Yeah. Of I mean, it, it, it really varies, you know, but like I've been, I, I've been holding office hours in Philly for the last many years. And I, as an example, I've, I've held, um, I think 210 slots now. <laughs> um, and so a lot of those are repeat companies, you know, that I've been advising. Um, but in, in any case, so I, that, there's a lot of personal experience, but really the book is built more upon, um, you know, that, that was a lot of struggles, right? Uh, right? But the book draws a lot on successes. So those initial interviews I did in 2009, 10 were like 25 really successful entrepreneurs um, and really dug into their stories. And then we did, between Justin and I, we did probably another 25 uh, very targeted interviews to, to fill out specific holes in our theses and marketing channels. So there's, you know, 19 of these traction channels we described in the book. There's a chapter for each one, uh, you know, like viral marketing or PR or whatever. And for each of those, if we didn't have great information, um, we would go seek out, okay, who's the startup that's done this really well? And we would go fill it out that way. Um, in addition to all those interviews, we then, for each of those uh, channels, we would get the best, you know, we would assemble the best resources of those and read it all and synthesize it all. And so those actual resources we use, the best ones are actually linked on our forum at uh, discuss.tractionbook.com. Um, yeah. So it, in the end, I don't know, like, you know, probably well over a hundred like serious traction stories. Right. Yeah. So that's actually uh, touched on something I'd like to bring up. Um, so Peter Thiel's book, uh, Zero to One, um, oh, which, by the way, your book is listed in Amazon as buying along with Peter Thiel's Zero to One and Ben Horowitz's The Hard Thing. About I know. Amazon. I am super, super excited about that. And I have an extremely first world problem about it, which is we, we didn't print enough copies. We didn't think our book would be as successful oh, as well. Man. So we are, we are going to go out of nice. stock. That book launched today. That, we're going to go out of stock in like two days for like three <laughs> weeks. 
<laughs> which is just kind of sad. And we're going to be probably kicked out of that spot as a result. Oh, wow. Oh, yeah. But I am excited about it. Nevertheless, I'm going to take the success. <laughs> yeah, because you have a five-star rating with 44 reviews already. And to be listed along next to those two guys, I mean, I was, I mean, those are the two books that are in. So, no, these three books are literally the top three books on my to read list. So, I, all three of one. I never do that. Um, I've had both of those order books on pre order for, I don't know, six months or whatever. And, I mean, I guess they both come out recently, but um, that's, that's incredibly impressive to be just, you know, be, I mean, it's not like some person just said, oh, I think this is a good book too. It's like people, the kind of people who read those two top notch books are reading yours. I mean, that's pretty awesome. Um, I am presently going to take a screenshot of it right now. That <laughs> 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 it really happened. <laughs> yeah. Cause when I saw it, I was like, holy crap, that's cool. <laughs> I, I think that's a quick second to being on iPhone search engine droplets. I think that's pretty <laughs> damn good. <laughs> but cause you know, one thing that Peter Thiel said in an interview, which, um, is interesting. Uh, he was interviewed on Tim Ferriss's show, um, and I find Peter Thiel to be one of the most interesting people around. And things that are very sort of surprising and contrarian, but not contrarian just for the sake of being a contrarian or being a troll, but just because he sort of thought about things in, in a different way, and and um, than I think a lot of people are or have been. And one thing he said, which. I think it's something Justin and I have covered on the show a little bit. We've talked about it. I'd like to get your opinion on it. I mean, you've kind of alluded to it already, which is this. He said that you don't learn nearly as much from failure as you learn from success. That there's this current sort of uh, embrace in failure. The failure is good, that it's learning. It's, you know, that it's, it's almost been fetishized. And you have these sort of conferences about failing. And, and because, you know, you, you learn. And, and, the, and that's good. And that should be encouraged. And you shouldn't make risks so... You shouldn't make failing seem like such a risk that people don't want to undertake something new. But what he points out, uh, which I agree with, is that, you know, it's like there's a million ways to fail, but there's a very finite number of ways to succeed. And, and I kind of think of the analogy, it's like, okay, let's say that you're, you know, you know, on the side of some really, you know, like some crazy fantasy book, right? You, there's this dark forest you're not supposed to, you know, go through. You know, it's like, ah, you know, nobody ever has made it through the forest. <laughs> I'm thinking of Maleficent, the movie Maleficent. I think that's what's coming to my head. And it's like, if everyone who's ever gone through has come back either bloodied or dead, you know, or near dead, you won't ask them, like, well, what did you try? But then there's like this one or one person that's gone through successfully, you'd go to them and be like, how'd you get through? Right? Like, I don't really care all these other people. There's a million ways to like, Face plant. How did you? How did you yeah. do it? And I, mean, yeah, I agree with that. Yeah, I oh, don't cut you off. Sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. So that. So so yeah. So right. I mean, I sound like you've heard a million and one ways. You probably find here five new creative ways to face plant every week, but you probably don't hear that often of yet a, a unique, new and unique way of of, of sort of um, you know of, of of winning. I think that's a good way to put it. Yeah. And so yes, yeah, so we were basically trying to catalog the ways of success, right? But to, to put two points on what you said that maybe a little off track, but it, you know, it's kind of what I've been thinking about over the years about failure. One is I think part of the reason why you could take two things away from the failure. I don't know what you call it, like fetishness that you right. said earlier. Um, one is that, you know, uh, the good part of that, you, you said the bad part, the good part about it is people aren't giving up because they failed once. And that that's kind of been my basic advice to people getting into startups is that 
if you have this one and done mentality that, you know, the first startup is likely to fail. And if you do that, then you're out and you never really gave yourself a good chance. Um, and so it's not totally embracing failure, but it's not giving up just because you failed once because that's normal, right? You shouldn't reject the whole concept because failure is a decent part of it. Um, the other piece that I kind of advise like, is align, along with Peter Thiel's is like, you know, if you're going to choose to go into startups, um, I think there's two good choices. One, you have a passionate idea you're willing to spend a decade on, in which case go do that. Or two, if you don't have that, which a lot of people don't, go join a successful startup that is kind of still pretty small, like maybe just raise their Series A or something, you know, 10 employees where you can make an impact or really see kind of some kind of success close up. So one one quick uh, note about that. Um, in, the, in, in the Traction book, uh, one of the things that you do is try so many different channels and so many different ways of getting traction. Each of those things would potentially be considered failure and then you kind of find the one thing that works or do you not consider them failure you just consider them tests i think that's an interesting point i mean i guess it, it kind of depends how you frame it right um they're clearly a test that failed <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> um but yeah they are failures i mean like you could say that even on our Duck2Go graph right it's like we have had long periods of not growing by that much, right? Um, are those failed periods compared to the periods where we're growing substantially? Um, it's, it, it's depending on how you frame it. So it's kind of impossible in many ways, or let's just say you'd be very lucky to pick a channel that was successful first time around, just like you'd be very lucky to be successful building a startup first time around. Yeah, and, and even more so, I think you'd also be very lucky for that channel that is successful to work for the entire life of your business, right? At some point, it's going to probably reach diminishing returns for some reason, either volume or competitiveness or, you know, something else about the world change that makes it not tenable for you. You, 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 you talk, I'd like to get into this in, in, in more detail later. You, you talk about phases of your business and how you achieve, how you sort of select uh, channels, you know, by what phase your business in is in. But one thing I want to ask you before we get any go on go any further is this: how how would you define traction exactly? I mean, is it is it a simple thing to figure out on a business for a business, or is it sometimes something you have to like think a little bit harder about in order, you know, get get the right approach? I think it does require kind of deeper thinking. Um, and that is, that is one reason it's a little complicated. So, I mean, on a most basic level, it's easy to define. It's, you know, whatever the core metric is of your business, be it revenue or active customers or, you know, active downloads or something, it's going kind of growing up and to the right, right? Um, it's a quantitative measure of customer demand. However, the complicated part comes in is twofold. One is, what is the right core metric or metrics you should be using? And two, what is your actual goal? Um, because if your goal is to achieve, you know, a small amount of traction, then small moves in that metric will, will kind of equal success and traction. But if your goal is high, then those small moves, even if they look kind of nice, are, are not good. Um, and so that's why we kind of recommend fleshing out that goal 
um, first. And choosing, we actually advocate the book, choosing a goal that corresponds with an inflection point in your company. Um, and, and that kind of relates to your question about phases in the business. The inflection point should be something that has a real meaningful impact kind of external to your company, like you have enough traction to raise money or you're profitable or you somehow have a percentage of the market where you're a market leader or entrenched in the market. There's some meaningful reason why you have that as your goal. I find that the goal setting to be an interesting topic in and of itself. And I'd like to hear you talk a little more about that because, um, you know, there's a certain there's a certain line of thought you hear periodically. It's like, don't focus on the goal, focus on the process. You know, um, you hear that in terms of, I don't know, life-changing habits, whether it's diet or exercise or learning something or I, I guess doing a startup. And to me, um, it seems like whenever I've made substantial progress, it was in conjunction of a couple of things. One, it was having a long-term goal, something you're really shooting for, they're really excited about, but then setting shorter-term, concrete, objective goals. Um, so, like, if you were doing a goal for, say, you know, getting in shape, it would be like, I'm going to lose X pounds by this day. I am going to literally weigh this. Not like, well, you know, I want to lose some weight or I want to, you know, go to the gym more often or whatever. And, um, you know, I, I'd be curious what your thought is on that and just sort of you know, philosophically, generally speaking, and also in terms of uh, building traction? Yeah, I mean, it, it gets a little nuanced quickly. I think you're right. It feels contradictory, but I think process and goal can coexist kind of naturally. And I think things are, you know, there are situations where the goal is appropriate, situations where it's not. Like, for instance, I don't particularly like yearly goals for the company um, because, there's a lot of things out of our control and if we don't hit them a lot of company morale can be lost. Um, you know, that was just kind of artificially imposed, um, at least at the early stage when things are unpredictable. However, having that goal of, you know, 1% of the search market, which has been our goal for a while is extremely important, especially for this traction stuff, because if you don't have that goal, you can't, evaluate these strategies on whether they're really going to move the needle for the goal or not. Um, and the problem with being somewhat successful is you get opportunities thrown at you all the time um, that are all, you know, look good on paper. But the question is, how much are they good compared to the other opportunities you have? If you have no goal to measure it against, you're like, oh, I'm going to go chase that. For us, it might yield, you know, another million searches a month, but we're at 150 million. If we miss a lot of time on that, we went from 150 to 151 you know, that's kind of a, a blip at that point. Whereas, you know, years ago, that would have could have doubled our growth and it would be totally worth it. Um, so to your point about mini goals, though, I think once you have the actual goal, then you can back backport this stuff into mini goals. And I think those are good as long as you don't, it, you don't create this negative morale thing if you miss them because it was out of your control. Right. I mean, it's sort of like, you know, um, you, 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 you want to, you want to make goals that are sort of reachable, doable, if you do the right things that are in your control. And I, I think that that makes complete sense. I think that applies to everything in, in life. Um, so, but you know, uh, one, one thing you're talking about is, you know, what's the picking the right strategy, you know, for the phase of your company. And, you know, do you, it, it was to me that, 
a lot of these companies would probably have a really hard time sort of getting off the crack pipe, right? So they're on one thing. It's worked for them. It's taken them from, you know, uh, it, you know for the first six months or first year, and now they got to go to the next stage. I mean, how... You know how do how do how do these entrepreneurs figure out whether it's time to switch to strategy or it's just a temporary blip? I mean, do you do you co- help coach some of these startups through you know sort of phase shifting? Yeah, I mean, it, it is a good problem to have first of all, right? Because <laughs> it means you you at least were successful in this in this stage. But you know, DuckDuckGo has been through that. Um, I count six times. So like, we started you know, using SEO. And then we did um, this kind of social Reddit kind of display ads. And then um, we did content marketing um, and then PR, uh, kind of print online PR. Then we did TV PR and now we're doing business development. Then each one of those stages corresponded with a significant growth and then kind of a leveling off. Um, And it was pretty obvious that leveled off. I mean, if you're tracking these things and you're in a growth trajectory, you know, the metrics are pretty obvious, whatever metric you're using. And then you can see it slowing <laughs> if you're graphing it and you're real to yourself. Um, and then you got to ask, okay, what's going on here? Is it, did, did something, you know, mess up? Will some tweaks fix it? Is it just saturation? And that's when you got to dig into the numbers more detailed to figure out what's going on. But if you can determine what the root cause is, if you are saturated, it's kind of more competitive, it's just too costly. Then you, you got to be real and say, okay, this is going to work. It's going to have diminishing returns, but I got to work on finding something new. Do you have things that you that you might term like a fake or phantom traction? So that they think they're getting traction, but they're really not. That they get sort of fooled into doing the wrong thing. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot of these. I mean, one of the terms that people use is the vanity metrics term. Um, you know, you're focused on maximizing something that doesn't really equate to real engagement with the product. So maybe it's, you know, you're, you're maximizing registered users, but they never become activated. Um, or you're focusing on downloads, but you're, it, it's not converting into anything. Um, so yeah, there can definitely be missed signs. Additionally, you could be, there's a number of these, unfortunately, it's like you said, with success and failure. There's a lot of ways you can do this wrong. Um, you could be paying too much for it. Like you could be doing something unsustainable that relates to your phase problem. That might be okay in the early phase when you're just trying to get some customers in the door. Um, but you can't do that forever. Um, and then a third way is, you know, this relates to, um, kind of not doing traction, right. You know, just doing lean startup development. But if you have a lot of beta customers, and you think you're getting traction because your beta customers are happy, you may be totally wrong because they could be close to you. I mean, you might have recruited them. It's unclear who those people are. That's why we advocate starting this stuff really early, at least having a study stream of completely cold customers coming through your door that could real give you real market feedback as opposed to kind of your insider beta list. You have so many different ways of uh, gaining traction. But one of the things I note isn't there is just viral just the product being viral in its own right um what do you think about that and and am i missing that there is some stuff about that in the book so we do have a a viral marketing chapter but it is like you said it's more about building viral loops into the product um i presuppose that any good product 
is going to have some word of mouth component because the product is good. And so some of your most evangelist customers are going to be talking about it. However, that's pretty much out of your control and only very, very, very few products. That's their primary growth channel, like offline word of mouth. You did nothing to do it. Um, if, if that happens, it'll happen naturally and it'll just be magical, <laughs> but you know, it starts with the premise that that's not going to happen to you because it's, that's like a unicorn event. So something like a WhatsApp or, or, a, or a Vine, that those are very, very rare occurrences. Well, I would argue that a WhatsApp or a Vine are more the traditional viral marketing and they've um, worked at making those viral loops work. You know, when you, when you do that onboarding, they're asking you to kind of invite your friends. And part of that is because you know, to, to use the product at all usefully, you need to communicate with friends. Um, so I'd argue more, that's more traditional viral marketing. I, I'd say more like an offline word of mouth. Uh, it's even hard to, to think of one. Uh, I, I suppose the, the ice bucket challenge. <laughs> yeah, that's good. Even that has been like, but yeah, that's pretty much because there's no like mechanism in there. I, I guess the mechanism is you're supposed to challenge your two friends. I'm thinking one that's like totally just, wow, you're, you know, someone just told me about this, you know, there was no, it wasn't built into the mechanism of the product in any way um, that's happened in the last few years. It would be something like that, like a, a product meme craze or something, uh, maybe like the Pebble watch or something. It's rare. That's the point. <laughs> we can't think of one. <laughs> what, what are some, you know, okay, you list 19 channels. Um, I believe that's, that's right. Is that the right number? That's the right number. Yeah. And, you know, arguably there might be, it depends on how you cut some of these up, but they're, you know, are around that number. So looking at those channels, I mean, which one of them would you think are probably the most underrated um, there or, or, or most, or would you think would be the most surprising to people? I mean, you know, I don't, I don't think anybody would argue that, Oh, like uh, Facebook ads or Google ads, work you know that's not gonna if you say oh i have this business and we did pretty well with facebook ads or something or we did pretty good with content marketing you know a lot of people be like okay yeah that's not surprising i've heard <laughs> that work a lot but what what you know what in there what i mean i don't want you to give away everything in the book i mean people should buy the book because i think it's a lot We're happy to, it, to but, give away um, everything <laughs> <laughs> what, so, what are um yeah what are, what are some of the things that you think are just you know people find very surprising or you found very surprising yourself Right. So I think the meta point there, which I found surprising and seems to ring true for, for many of the people we talked to was that, you know, underutilized channels in general are where explosive growth happens. And it, it could be the case, which we'll talk about in a second, underutilized channels just in general, like no one's doing this channel in general, or it could be underutilized channels for your particular market type. Like everyone in your market type goes to trade shows, but no one is doing Google ads. In that case, Google ads may be really awesome for you because kind of an open field is not arbitraged away. But the ones that, you know, are consistently getting overlooked are, I put first and foremost, this, this channel that we basically had to name. So I didn't see any other name for it out there, um, which we called engineering as marketing. Um, and the best example of that is, um, HubSpot, you know, which is going IPO, um, soon and they do inbound marketing and they have this other site that is not related to their product. So it's not freemium called website creator where you go on and you type in your domain name 
and it, it grades your website how well you do on online marketing. Um, and millions of people have gone through this, and they have ten thousand customers around you know, a few tens of thousands of customers to give you a sense of their scale. Um, and it's independent from there; it's spread its own virally because it's useful. It's on its own domain name, but then they use it as kind of a lead gen tool for their main product. And so, on the face of it, it sounds pretty simple and straightforward, and it is. But not many people actually do this. Um, and the key is to find like use some engineering resources for traction, which people don't generally do, and then to find a free complementary tool that people want that wouldn't work as a standalone business, but it works great as a funnel to your other business. And so a few of the people who've done this is, you know, SEO Moz does this well with like follower wonk. And then this Philadelphia company that literally just the other day raised sixty and a half million dollars in Series B money called RJ Metrics. It's a data processing company. They have a bunch of these sites uh, to help people convert databases and stuff like that. Just needs they found on the internet that weren't filled. Um, but I love that channel. Does, does it go hands in hands with um, integration as marketing? Like, for example, plugging your your app into Salesforce or something like that? Yeah, I mean, I I think that is, is a kind of a different channel, but it's, it's similar. Yeah, I mean, it, it, that's kind of where you said, like, some of these overlap. Um, but yeah, very similar. Finding these um, kind of complementary tools and products. I would argue that if it's like a widget that is kind of separate from your product, that would definitely fall into this. If it is a plug-in for your product, then it's kind of a plug-in for your product. Well, one, th- one thing we love to talk about in the technology world is eating your own dog food. And I'd be curious, after having interviewed these, uh, you know, some of these other entrepreneurs and compiling the book, um, have you taken any lessons from that process or from these interviews and actually been able to apply them directly to DuckDuckGo to, and, and had some you know, interesting, uh, interesting results or surprising results? Yeah, I mean, so on the framework level, absolutely. So when I, I mentioned I first started doing DuckDuckGo, I might have talked about the show when I first came on using SEO right, to, to get people to go there to go. And for that, I built a widget. I did a bunch of things so that when people typed in new search engine on Google, they would come to DuckDuckGo. Um, and it worked. We ranked, I think, first for that term. And um, the reason I did that was because my previous company, you know, grew a lot through SEO. And um, so I knew about it. So that, you know, it makes intuitive sense, but it was the wrong move. And that that's kind of the big lesson learned. I was biased for SEO because I had experience in that. However, it was not the right channel for, for traction given our goal, um, you know, to get to, you know, hundred million searches a month, the volume on that term was tiny. Um, so, you know, arguably it still might've been good to get those first customers, but since my goal was larger, like I spent a lot of time wasted on these side SEO focused things that, you know, I could have focused on the next level up, like content marketing, which drove a lot more people to, to DuckDuckGo. Um, so the main thing I learned was, you know, apply this framework <laughs> to, to my own business. That's, that's the biggest lesson. Yeah, that, I mean, that, that sounds like, a, I mean, as good a recommendation as any, right? The, and DuckDuckGo is extremely successful. And, you know, so, hey, you know, that's, that's where you want to get some advice from um, is from a situation like that. So I'm also interested in, um, in the people you interviewed. Um, can you maybe talk a little bit about 
some of, I don't know, some of the more interesting interviews or, um, you know, maybe some of the interviewees who are maybe think about things in a, in a different way that, that was, that might be worth talking about. Yeah. We interviewed, um, Marketo, a, um, I think, man, I, this is just bad because I'm blanking on his name, (laughs) but the CEO of Marketo, um, which is a, um, you know, a company that went IPO last year, um, and is also a marketing company. And what's most, so we advocate in the book, you know, um, spending half your time on traction and doing it right away. Um, and I can get in, get into more detail why, but he was the perfect example of that. He actually started his blog, um, right, you know, before you know, any product work talking about the blog and he actually had a first hire. He hired a blogger as the first full-time hire, not even a product person. Um, and so essentially started doing the, doing the traction exploration instantly. Um, and he tried various things, but the blog really did end up being their first major growth channel. And when they launched, they had built this list of 14,000, um, you know, really interested marketers, um, for their product. And they, they instantly took off. Um, and it's really like a, perfect illustration of kind of how this process worked. Another, another good one was Noah Kagan, um, who we referenced in the book a bunch, who has ran growth at Mint and now, you know, runs AppSumo. Um, he applied this testing strategy that we advocate in the book, um, like perfectly at, at Mint. You know, they set a, a goal for launch of 100,000 customers in the first six months. He brainstormed all the channels. He, you know, put numbers to them in a spreadsheet. He went out and tested which ones were going to be most effective for that goal. He ended up picking um, targeting blogs as a channel, then, you know, dropped all the other channels, focused super hard on them, which is what we suggest as the last step. And then uncovered by focusing, he uncovered all these special strategies that no one else had really done before. And it it totally worked. I mean, it it took off again, like um, Marketo right at launch and he made his goal. So, so it sounds like you, when go when applying the framework, it, you you need to you need to approach with a scientific mindset. It's not just sort of this. Yes, maybe I'll try that. It's like you need to kind of be, um, uh, you know, uh, what's more sort of more formal about it. You know, like this is unorganized. And and is that is that something you get into in the book? Yeah, I mean, I was so yes, and I'm a very scientific person and numbers person, and so we wrote the whole chapter on the framework without any numbers. And then we, we referenced a spreadsheet um, that you could download. And we suggested some of the columns, like, you know, how, how much guesstimating through your tests and then confirming them later, how much it costs to acquire a customer, how many customers maybe, um, you know, coming through this channel, are these the right customers? A measure of that. Um, I personally advocate getting as quantitative as possible. I hesitated doing too many numbers in the book because I didn't want to scare people off. And I think applying the structured approach, even without numbers is better than not. Um, but yes, I think you need to put numbers to this stuff if you're going to be real successful at it. Yeah. The, the, um, it seems like, you know, most entrepreneurs, I mean, most people, I mean, you're, you're going to just going to read about some, read a blog post, read an article, listen to a podcast. Someone says, try this, try that. And you just, 
do things, you know? Um, and, you know, I, I, what, what do you think, what's the result if somebody doesn't do it structure? I mean, what, what are the problems with just, just trying stuff? I think the problems are that, you know, the likelihood that you're going to match the right channel to the right growth thing are unlikely by doing that. Um, and so you might get some traction that way, especially if the product is good because you're presupposing the product is good. Right. Um, and, but you might be missing out on really taking off. Um, so the opportunity cost is really high. Um, the other thing is that, you know, we were talking about how in general one channel is usually successful in the big growth period. Um, if you kind of read posts all the time and then go off and try things, you're not focusing on that one channel. Um, and if you don't focus, this is kind of a top of mind concept, then you're not going to uncover the creative strategies that are really going to take it to the next level. Um, and so you risk, it's another form of opportunity cost, I guess. It's the opportunity cost of, of not doing the one thing that you may have already found correctly. You're kind of half-assing it at that point. You, you know, you wrote this book with uh, Justin Maris, right? That's a, that's yep. who's your co-author. Yep, that's right. Um, could you tell us a little bit about his role in, in, in the process? Because you know, as we mentioned early on, you did a bunch of interviews and video. You sort of stalled out, got got busy building DuckDuckGo. How did he come into this, and and how did, what kind of role? How did you guys work together and get get the book together? I mean, he had a similar interest. So he um, was running growth at this company, Airbrake, which sold to Rackspace last year. Um, and it was interesting because it was his, his skills and experience are complementary to mine because his is mainly totally B2B focused. Uh, and whereas most of my personal experience has been consumer driven. Um, but so he knew about it and was interested in the same way I was interested, like there's a hole in the market here. I'd love to get a structured approach here. I'm trying to do it at this company. Um, I want to help. And so he, what he really did was he picked up and did the next round of interviews, really fleshing out the chapter. So by the time he came on, we kind of had an outline. And the way we cut it up was, you know, I would draft the intro chapters and he would draft the channel chapters based on the research we'd already done and interviews to, to flesh out those chapters. Um, that was roughly how we divided the initial draft. Um, but then the initial draft <laughs> was, you know, 350 pages and, you know, had a lot of holes in it and had too much jargon. So then we hired a professional editor to help us. And, you know, at that point, from that point on, literally 60% of the process was in editing the book. <laughs> um, and we went through multiple rounds of, you know, I did Justin's stuff, he edited mine, we went to the professional editor, did through two rounds. And so it ended up going through like five rounds of editing to widow it down. We, we cut the book by 50% and make, got rid of all the jargon or best we could. Wow. So how, how long did this whole process take in terms of, I don't know, months or years? And how much of your time did it take on a sort of a weekly basis? So from literally starting the initial interviews now has been five years. Um, but, you know, I was doing Dr. Go the whole time. And so I, it wasn't obviously full time. Um, and there was a period in the middle, like a middle year and a half period where I hardly did anything right before Justin really came on board. These last two years were, were decently consistent. Um, I don't know 
<laughs> I, I, I hesitate to even try to count the hours because I might cry. <laughs> um, but it was a lot of, it was a lot of work of, of any spare time I could find, especially on weekends, um, doing editing. So Justin, I have five more questions for Gabe. Um, is there anything you want to get in before I get into this? I guess one quick question is, is, is this a, is this a book, um, for web-based software only, or would it apply to a real world business or would it apply to, you know, an app in the app store? I think that it applies, you know, everywhere in these concepts are universal. However, you know, I, I take a large caveat that, um, definitely applies to the app store. There's app store stuff in it, but, um, a large caveat that almost everyone we interviewed is software startup based. So, um, it's very possible there's, there's bias there or a lot of bias, <laughs> but I still nevertheless, nevertheless think the channels are pretty universal. So I think the concepts are apply pretty much to any business. All right. So I'm going to ask, so Justin, I'm going to ask, uh, my, actually I had five questions, but I, I forgot my fifth one. While you were, <laughs> <laughs> it's only down to four now. <laughs> Fine. So, all right, and, 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 and these will get, I guess, increasingly broad. Um, but the first one I'll ask is, Gabe, what has been your biggest traction coup with Duck? So, I mean, it, it, the jury is a little out because, you know, this is just getting released today. But I am going to predict that it's going to be, you know, becoming a search option in Safari. Um, and it's kind of amazing. We are, are in it in a number of ways um, because we're, we're still such a small company, but um, you know, it's also been six years in the making. So I understand a lot of things had to happen for that to even possibly occur. You know, we had to be a decent sized business. We had to be seemingly going to be around for a long time. I think the Edward Snowden and the NSA leak of some kind would have had to happen. Um, and, you know, people are taking privacy more seriously, um, which kind of gets to your point from a long time ago. I don't know if you still talk about that, like the luck service area. <laughs> um, yeah. But so, so that's, that's probably the one. Right. And well, what did that, what kind of, so that's the, so you don't really know the results of that one yet because that just happened, right? Right, but I, I can already kind of tell that it is going to be, you know, great for us. Well, let's just consider that there's 500 million iPhone users, <laughs> a, a tiny fraction of those searching. <laughs> yeah, it's right, exactly. You can, you can do some math on it. You can also say, you know, it's just going to make us more entrenched. It's, it's going to lead to, it already has started leading to other things. You know, it's just, I think it's a inflection point for us. Okay, so after after getting this book done and all the work that it took. I mean, do you have any interest uh, in doing another book um, anytime in the near future? So certainly not in the near future. <laughs> now that I know how busy I am and how much work it takes, I am interested in other books because I like writing. You know, I like um, uh, blogging. I like just, the, I just writing in general. I always have. So I think it's definitely not going to be my last thing, but I have no immediate plans to do anything. So I'm going to ask you two questions. Uh, I had a third, but I lost it for some reason in my head while we were talking. But um, so Peter Thiel 
ask this question of people. I think about people who interview for the Teal Fellowship, and I think it's kind of interesting. And you know, you're a smart guy. You always seem like you're quick. You're quick on your feet. So I, I, I sort of, I, I think you'll probably come up with something good. But he asks, "What do you believe that no one else believes, or at least most people don't believe?" Yeah, I actually remember when he put that question out, and I, I immediately wrote a blog post answering his questions. <laughs> um, <laughs> oh, this is not fair. You've got yeah, to think about fair. it. Okay. I could come up with something else, but I, you know. No, no, no. One, tell, us what you, tell us what you wrote. Tell us what you wrote. Yeah. Well, I, I, now I even hesitate to remember what I wrote, but I think what I wrote was, because <laughs> um, I think there's a lot of things I believe that no one else believes, or not many people believe. Um, or give me some, give, give me a few, if you got a few, let's see. Yeah, know, so I, the one know, that I, I think I wrote about was, you know, I think that we should have another constitutional, this is getting off the, off the beaten path, but another constitutional convention in the U.S. Um, to, you know, clean up a bunch of things that have gone awry in the last 200 years and get us on a kind of place where we can govern the country more appropriately. Um, and that's like, that's so a basically whole, we need to refact. You're basically, we're saying we need to refactor the constitution. Yes, yes, exactly. <laughs> and do, and do a bunch of things on the amendments, you know, like, like a right to privacy and, and fix eminent domain. And there's a electoral college. There's a list of these things that vast majorities prefer, but you know, that could actually pass, but you know, we're still not able to do because they're not constitutional. Um, right. and I think it kind of deserves a reboot. That's a great idea. I love that one. Damn, that's good. I wish I thought of that. Okay, you got anything else? Because <laughs> give, give a whole list. I mean, if you got if, that, if that's if it's that was so good, I, I want I want some more. I don't know. That's the one I remember. Nothing else is popping into my head. Okay. <laughs> all right. All right. Fine. Um, this one is this is a question. This is just kind of silly, but I think it sometimes is kind of fun uh, fun to ask. It's um. Sarah Lacey from what Panda Daily asked this when she interviews people sometimes. What is your mediocre superpower? So I'll just to preface it, my mediocre superpower, I joke with my wife all the time. My mediocre superpower is that I can catch anything that I drop. You know, say so if you're in the kitchen and you're pulled a spice and it like drops from her hand. <laughs> I catch that thing every damn time drop a toothbrush or t- I mean, it is amazing. Spider-Man. <laughs> like, yeah. To the point, to the point that if I ever if I ever drop something and I don't catch it in midair, it's happened so few times that it's like remarkable. Sandy goes, "What happened?" I'm like, "I don't know." Like that was really weird. So that's my mediocre superpowers. It, you know, obviously it has almost it's very it's very uh, mediocre <laughs> at best. So what, what, what's your mediocre superpower? Yeah, so my mediocre superpower would be echoes oh, back um, ability to focus. And like block out everything, and my wife does not like this <laughs> because I will sit. We literally have a computer in our in our kitchen now, an iMac, and occasionally there'll be something I need to get into for work, and or I'll be doing something there, and she'll literally have a conversation with me, and I will answer a question, and then have no recollection of the conversation, and just be completely focused on what I was doing. And there can be chaos with kids in the background, and. Um, um, I just have some ability to block out everything. That's actually a much more useful superpower, I have to say. That's, I, I kind of have that a little bit, too. My, uh, I've had people complain about that. Maybe not to the degree you have it, but that's that's much more useful than catching small objects that you happen to drop. <laughs> just, 
Jesse, do you want to jump in? Do you have a mediocre superpower? I, I, I've been thinking. I can't think of one off the top of my head, but I'll bring it up in the next uh, discussion show. I'll think, I'll think of something. Oh, yeah. Here was my fifth question. Ah, I'm glad I thought of it because this is the perfect way to end it. Um, so, Gabe, is there anything that we didn't ask you that <laughs> we should <laughs> ask you? <laughs> you know, is there some point that people you'd like to have people understand or know about um, and, you know, been listening to this interview? Um, I would just reiterate that, you know, to starting traction early is counterintuitive, but the best thing to do. And it just to put like, to go a little farther on that, I like the leaky bucket metaphor everyone's familiar with, you know, you have a bucket that's got holes in it. In this case, you're pouring customers in it and, you know, they're flowing out because your product sucks at the beginning. And the usual intuitive solution for that is to do lean startup and, you know, start plugging those holes with the beta customers. The problem is, and then you're saying, well, I'm not going to spend time on traction because I got to get the product to work. It's leaky. The problem is, is that like we were talking about before, those beta customers are too close to you and you're not seeing all the holes in your product. And so you really do need to do some work on traction and get a study stream of cold people in so you see where those holes are. And you end up spending less time on product development, but you actually spend um, you know, the right time on product development so you get to market faster with the right product. If you don't do this, what I've seen over and over again is you know, they launch, startups launch, and then they have to do additional product development cycles to kind of plug these holes that they could have discovered early. Right. That makes perfect sense. Well, I, I, your, your book sounds awesome. I mean, the reviews are, are glowing. The fact that it's listed alongside, you know, Peter Thiel and Ben Horowitz's books is, is, is pretty much says it all. So, um, yeah, go buy it now before it runs out, right? Because it's going to be out of print about, like, this time tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, pretty much. But it, it's going to be back in print in, in a couple of weeks. Um, and you can still buy the Kindle, but it is sad that it's going to go out of print for a few weeks. Can we ask you that? How many did you print? 3,000. <laughs> That's uh, pretty pessimistic. Were you yeah. just going to jinx yourself? You're like, oh, if we print like 20,000, then you know I'm going to have 10,000 sitting in my garage for the next five years. I'm going to feel really bad about it. Is that kind of what you were thinking? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, you know, there are most books don't sell many copies, put it that way. <laughs> so I, we had no idea. We kind of did this in somewhat of a vacuum and no idea if it would be received well or not, honestly. How, how, many, how many copies do, do books, I mean, do you think it's like zero to one will sell? Do you have any number, uh, you know, estimates on things like that? Yeah, like so, so a really successful, like, bestseller book that's a bestseller for a long time, like you'd think of, oh, I've heard of that book, you know? Um, and like, just, say Tim, like Tim Ferriss's four-hour work week or something. Like yeah. A nonfiction sort of, I don't know, what, what did these go on? Did they go on like the, almost like the business section? Yeah. Know? His is probably like on another tier of successful, <laughs> but like the household name kind of business book, kind of successful nonfiction book will be a hundred thousand seller over its lifetime. That's what I've heard. Um, but like, you know, most business books don't, you know, aren't going to sell more than a thousand copies. Um, and a successful one to a publisher would be like a 10,000 copy sale. Um, and so, you know, and then in between that, you know, you could get pretty successful, but like 
you know, this was for startups, you know, there's tons of, go, go on to Amazon and search for startups <laughs> or go in the startup category and you'll, you'll see what I mean. You know, there's, there's littered with books of, from successful founders that just don't sell at all. Well, I mean, so if you've already sold 3000 almost within what, I mean, how much has been like, it's been on the market, like two, three weeks or something. Yeah, and, and it, we sold equivalent amount of Kindle books. So we, we sold somewhere, we sold about 6,000 copies of the book. Oh, do, do, you know how like um, you know, the, uh, the people who follow the movie industry will say, well, if the opening weekend did this or we did this in the first week, we could sort of pretty much extrapolate what it's going to do you know, in its lifetime or at least in its you know, run in the theaters and stuff like that. I mean... Do you have any, your, did your publisher have any estimate in saying, well... well so we self-published the book, so <laughs> I have no... So, so what does your publisher say? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, I say that you can't tell because if you look at books, the even successful ones, some of them go down to essentially zero sales and some of them stay at a threshold. And I think that's that baseline word of mouth threshold, you know, because these aren't startups where you're, where you're plugging in this this marketing channel all the time, unless you're a professional author. So you end up at this base level of word of mouth. And that is going to be the key here, whether, you know, when you start a company, is someone going to say, Hey, you got to read this book to help you. Or is it going to be like, Oh yeah, you know, I'm searching through startups and I found this thing. If people are really recommending it, you know, a year from now, then it'll, that'll have a really long tail. I mean, you know, I know I said I had five more questions before. That was obviously a complete lie. <laughs> <laughs> We're probably on at least three extra questions now. <laughs> but um, what uh, did, were you able to apply any of your traction ideas to the book itself? So make it sort oh, of meta yeah, traction? Absolutely. Yes. Yes. And I think we've been successful at it so far. What were they? What, what did you do that you think worked? We, we had two strategies for this. One is we wanted to go beyond even what we suggested because we thought it would be interesting if we tried every single traction channel for traction just because it would be fun for people. Um, and we realized, we started doing that. We realized that's going to take a lot of work, especially work to write it up. It's going to be like another book. Um, so I don't know if we're going to end up writing all that up or even finishing it all. But we essentially you know, did the brainstorming step. We came up with really good testing strategies and took them further than even brainstorming of how we would test each channel. Um, and then we did what the framework suggests, which is, you know, pick the top three. Um, and the three we initially picked were um, email marketing, you know, doing our own list, um, as well as accessing other people's mailing lists in some way, um, to... Um, you know, podcasts like the show. <laughs> um, and that was related kind of to targeting blogs. You could group them in the same category. Um, uh, you know, finding audiences, blog audiences or podcast audiences that overlap with the book and trying to reach them. And the third was speaking engagements. Um, and, you know, we tested a couple of those kind of to see what would happen. Um, and really launched we want to do a launch of this because like you said, book launches are, are more intense. So we really focused on those three channels and tested them all on launch day or launch week. Um, and we tracked them in a number of ways. One, we used the Amazon affiliate links to, you can add IDs to them and figure out kind of how they're converting that way. And then we also added this bonus thing where you can get 
another, um, you can get bonuses for buying the book before a couple of days ago. And um, we asked people when they sent us the bonus, you know, how did you hear about the book? Um, and from that, we could kind of gather where people were hearing about us. It was actually pretty surprising that, you know, it was all over the map. Um, I would say that our list, you know, had been far away the biggest driver. Um, but that, you know, we can't grow the list as quickly as the part of that is because the list had grown over five years. <laughs> um, and so it was, it, it was the initial biggest driver, but it, it immediately pretty much reached that point of diminishing returns we were talking about. And so, and the next one that was really successful was, has been podcasts. Um, you know, people like yourselves have built up these audiences over years and they're, they're good matches for the book. And so, um, I've been on a bunch and I think they really have moved the needle um, for kind of getting into that next phase of growth for the book. Cool. Uh, yeah. I, well, I think I'm looking forward to the follow-up po post, you know, titled something like meta traction or something and talking about this whole story of launching the book. That would be interesting. I was thinking of waiting until 10,000 copies were sold and saying like, you know, you know, track 10,000 copies of traction sold traction by the number or something like that. Also giving details, I figure people would like be interested in details of like how it broke down in terms of Kindle versus audio versus print and that kind of stuff. Absolutely. Well, that, that sounds like a, you know, a, a hacker news front pager that'll get you another 20,000 to 30,000 views right there. You know, <laughs> there was like, there's, follow -up yeah. post to that, you know, it's just like this endless. <laughs> I know there's another post I want to, there, there's a bunch of stuff that this is, this is not to sell more books. This one, this is just to help other people, but like this self publishing thing, there's a bunch of self publishing posts I read, but like, you know, a lot of people stop with the print on demand stuff, but we actually, I wanted to be, you know, I wanted it to be more an official licking thing. And so I wanted us to act like a publisher. I wanted a hardcover to start with. Um, and so we couldn't do the normal stuff like create space, which is Amazon off the shelf printing doesn't do hardcover. Um, and you can't act like a publisher in it. you know, um, you don't get the normal promotions. We probably wouldn't be related to the zero to one, like you're saying, you know, if we had done it that way. So in, in becoming a publisher, we had to sign up for these, all these other systems. And there were all these other issues I discovered that just are not well documented um, that I would like to write up at some point. Yeah, that sounds that sounds really interesting. I'd like to ask you about it, but I know we're kind of running long as always. So. I, I'm down to two more questions. <laughs> so I, I'm sorry, Gabe. Every time I talk to you, I just have an endless, endless list of these things coming up. So um, I knew that, and I blocked off more time. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, I've talked to Jason before. I know how it goes. I so, like, I like talk. I like these conversations. They're interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we were just talking about that offline. How how much fun is to interview guys like you and Rob Walling? It's just it's it's, it's super fun. You know. Um, so. Uh, here, my last two questions. So the, one of them was, do you have any plans to say, teach a course at like a business school? Kind of like how Peter Thiel taught that course at Stanford. I mean, it would seem like you're in Pennsylvania. Maybe you could go teach a course at Wharton on, on. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, the answer is, it, you know, I'm Ryan Duck to go. It's way too busy. And I just, I don't, I've done some of that before. And, um, it just, I have no plans for it. The same reason I, same token, I don't really have plans to do kind of a book tour or anything like that. I mean, this would be the equivalent of a tour. Um, if I was at a different place in, in life and career, maybe, 
but but not right now. I have a question. Do you have a any kind of celebration in mind, a thing that you're going to do when you get to 1% of the search market? We have been, and I, you know, I'm paramount of this, been terrible at celebrating anything. <laughs> um, so I would love to do something. We, um, we are celebrating as best we can <laughs> for the, for, for this, for the iOS 8 integration. Um, and we did celebrate um, when we, we re-released our site, you know, a big re-release in uh, June of this year. And we had a company celebration. We flew in everyone from overseas. Um, and so I'm, I've been trying to get better at this, <laughs> uh, especially now that we have other people working here. But um, I do not have something in mind for 1%. Oh, okay. I've been looking for some kind of reason to dye my hair again since I was 20. <laughs> okay, that's, <laughs> so that's I'm hoping maybe I can rope this in somehow, but I don't know. Okay, so so my last question, which really is, you know, kind of off track a little bit from what we've been talking about, but um, you mentioned it earlier, and I'm curious. So you've invested, I think you said, in twelve startups. You have twelve yep. investments. Twelve, that's how, right. How has that process worked out for you? And and I guess it's going to be a multi-parter, so I can turn one question is actually three. But so, um, you know, are you are you continuing to invest? One is this like an ongoing thing, or is this something you just did in the past? And how has it worked out? Uh, from a, from a financial standpoint, do you have any return on these or any expected return or anything close to that? So, I mean, the average time these things take to go to fruition is like seven to 10 years. Um, so it's a, it's a little early, you know, because I started in 2009 and I've been doing about three investments a year um, consi- relatively consistently. What's changed is I've had a lot less time um, a bunch of things have changed. I did write a post on it, so to, for anyone who wants to reference. But the short answer is, you know, I've become less active in deal flow, more passive, invested in people I've already kind of known and what they've been doing. I can see over time and a lot more Philly focused. Um, there's a lot of reasons for that. But in terms of like the returns, yeah, two companies I invested in had um, exits, not ridiculous amounts, but they also just raised an angel round. So the returns weren't terrible. And as a result, the entire portfolio is a little over break even at the moment in terms of actual returns. So it's not like it's a ton of return, but um, it is enough where my wife doesn't care (laughs) as an example. And um, it's enough where I'm confident it'll, you know, be continue that at least going forward. And that, it's, it's also been rewarding and like being involved with all these companies. I've been on the board of a bunch. I've seen all these things that I wouldn't otherwise see. In other words, like I'm still learning a lot from these companies. Um, so I'm going to keep continuing to do it. That's really, that's really cool. Um, well, I, yeah, I look forward to reading some more about that as, as time goes by and you have things to talk about, uh, in that regard. But, um, well, Gabe, I really appreciate you spending as much time with us as, as you have. I mean, we always keep you along and ask you a bunch of questions that are kind of off topic when you're always good support about it. So, uh, and it's, it's awesome to see the success of DuckDuckGo because, you know, I felt like we were, we were right there at the beginning. It was just you in a basement and we were asking you about it. Now you've become, you know, kind of a, a big deal in your own right. I mean, I know you probably wouldn't admit to that, but <laughs> I, you seem like a pretty big deal to me and <laughs> it's, <laughs> It's awesome to see, uh, you know, the success of the book. I mean, it's just, just great. So I'm really, I'm really excited. I'm vicariously excited for you. This is just, 
really cool. Thank you. Always fun. It, it feels similar to me because I still I'm just kind of sitting around here in Paoli. You know, all these things happen on the internet, not in my real life, <laughs> in a way. Isn't that funny? You walk down the street, nobody knows who you are, nobody cares. It's just you're just this regular guy standing in line for his hamburger or whatever, right? Exactly. And that's how I feel. And that's how I would like it to be forever. <laughs> well, that's awesome. Well, we, we wish you the best of luck with uh, Go and, uh, and the book Traction. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I guess by the time our podcast or this show is posted live by tomorrow or something like that, or maybe even later today and people listen to it, there may or may not be any copies left. And so they may have to wait a week or two, but get your, get your orders in now. We want to, want to keep this, uh, I, I, I would like to see traction listed alongside, uh, you know, zero to one and the hard thing about hard things for as long as possible. Cause that's, that's just super cool in its own right. Either way, I took the screenshot. So thank you. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks so much. Gabriel. All right. Well, that's a wrap. We're out. Thank you.